you, Catherine, are going to Sydney. Where there's going to be a food governance conference hosted by the University of Sydney, which happens to be on the exact same weekend, and I'm devastated that I can't come to your event, Glenn. Ah, those Australians. Yes, <laughs> as the first ever food law and policy conference in Canada. Uh, I cannot tell you how upset I was when I found out there was there was another law-based food conference at a law school at the same time that we chose our date. Like in any given year right now, so in 2016, let's say, I think there are probably 12 conferences in total. So I was like, <laughs> when we start inv- inviting lovely people like yourself, and you're like, oh, yo, I'd love to, but I really didn't think I'd be conflicted out of a food law and policy conference. So you know what we're going to have to do? We're going to have to tweet at each other live from the events (laughs) and then just make it this global conversation about food. Well, I know that I personally will be up for like four days straight. So that shouldn't be a problem for me given the time zone. But... Welcome to The Food Court, Season 2 podcast hosted by me, Glenford Jameson, and supported by my law firm, G.S. Jameson & Company. We do great corporate commercial and regulatory work primarily for stakeholders from all parts of the food sector. When we're not doing that, we're researching, writing, or speaking on issues facing food and law. This season on the podcast, we've got interviews with lawyers, chefs, food experts, and thought leaders, all of whom are doing tremendous things related to the food law space. I'll get to this episode's guest, Catherine Ma, in a moment. But first, I have a major cold, so bear with me during this intro. Now on to the good news. Our conference, The Future of Food Law and Policy in Canada, that I'm co-organizing with Professor Jamie Baxter, is at Schulich School of Law this week, November 3rd and 4th. And we're really pumped. We're at capacity. I think we have something like two or three tickets left. And the speakers who have opted to come are all of a remarkable caliber. We were partnered with uh, Devour Food Film Festival. It's in Wolfville, and we're going to be showing a remarkable documentary there on uh, chocolate production and uh, doing a panel afterwards. But all of this uh, is really exciting. Now, if you're in Halifax and you can't make it to the full conference, as part of the conference, we're having a free public talk at the Seaport Farmer's Market with Bryant Terry. Bryant's bio is similar in length to my guest's bio today. He's the chef in residence at the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco. He's recently been named one of nine people changing the future of food, and he's received a James Beard Leadership Award and is a champion of youth empowerment relating to the food system. One of uh, the U.S.'s 100 most influential African Americans. He's a best-selling cookbook author, part of the American Chef Corps, and uh, he's buddies with Alice Waters, which I think is really cool. Anyway, he's speaking at the Halifax Seaport Farmer's Market on Thursday, November 3rd at 7.30, so definitely check it out. Now, on to Catherine Ma, public health superhero. Catherine is a doctor twice over. She's an MD and a PhD and is a professor of health policy at Memorial University with a fellowship from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research for Public Health Policy. She's a former member of the Toronto Food Policy Council and a founding member of the St. John's Food Policy Council uh, as well. I've posted her bio on uh, the company blog post to this episode, so check it out. It's really impressive. Catherine is currently doing some interesting work with a Healthy Corner Stores initiative in rural and outport Newfoundland, 
where heading to your local grocer isn't a five-minute walk uh, or drive, but instead it's, it's a matter of a couple hours. In my conversation with Catherine, I was reminded that this era we live in is an interesting time in food law because of increased consumer attention in demand, technology, and a few other developments. But it's also a renaissance for public health and health promotion. And there's some overlap with the types of stakeholders that Catherine does research on and we work for. So this conversation was somewhat familiar, but when you live in a particular conceptual universe like I do, and you're looking at things in a very granular way through a specific lens, it's really healthy to take a step back and employ a completely different lens in a different perspective. And that's very much what this conversation was for me. So uh, without further ado, here is Catherine in studio. Enjoy. Hi there, Glenn. Hey, Catherine Ma. Welcome into studio. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, fresh from St. John's? Fresh from St. John's. By, way of, by way of Ottawa. Yeah, awesome. it feels like the right thing to do. The nation's capital. <laughs> Come on down to Toronto for the start of Thanksgiving weekend. Parliament's back in session. That's right. Passing. The kids are back in class. The Senate just dropped a bill on public health and nutrition. Nancy Green Rain started to uh, make some moves on the Senate report, I think. She did, and uh, so this was a private Senate bill on uh, sugar sweet. On How often does that happen? Like I, did, I saw it was like a bill. Okay, that's which part? Senate. So I teach uh, the health policy class for the Masters of Public Health students at Memorial, and uh, one of my students, so excited, had chosen uh, food marketing to kids as the topic for her policy assignment this semester and sent me an email that day. <laughs> I was looking through the parliamentary website and guess what I found? The Senate bill. I've got terrible news for them. They'll keep on referring to the Food and Drugs Act, which is going to be replaced by the Safe Food for Canadians Act any day now. But like in substance, really exciting. It's one of the first cases that you go through in constitutional law is talking about um, advertising to children as a restriction of free speech and like whether it's right or wrong and in Quebec you're not allowed to advertise certain things to kids under the age of I think 13 and if it doesn't pass a smell test and it doesn't go through. I didn't know it was such a classic case in uh, in food law. Well not in food law but definitely sort of like your intro to constitutional law or to the charter. So I'm thrilled to have you in here today. We've been working on this for ages and I want you because your CV is probably 45 pages long. <laughs> Give us a breakdown. So you are a public health researcher. How does your world touch into the world of, of food policy or food law? Well, thanks so much for that, Glenn. Unnecessary, but thanks so much. Um, so first of all, I have a little confession to make that one of the reasons why I agreed to be on this podcast is because, uh, you know, along the way of all of the schooling uh, and the public health and the policy, I had always had this this dream that, oh, maybe I could also be a lawyer. <laughs> because it just seemed like a really, really cool thing to do. So I, did, I get to do the next best thing, which is to come on your podcast hey. and chat food law instead. You would be terribly disappointed to learn that for all the suits or law and order or any other procedural that you've ever seen, my job has nothing to do with that. It's a lot of probably the same things, sitting in a very quiet office, late at night, in front of a computer, just hammering out Oxford commas and inane grammatical changes to things. But but I'm thrilled. That's so nice. Yeah. So my trip to uh, to sitting at the desk doing the Oxford commas, 
Um, I was originally born in Calgary and then uh, ended up doing med school there and then went out to uh, Newfoundland Labrador where I did my pediatric residency a number of years ago. Uh, and at that point, uh, I, I moved to Toronto and had really wanted to wanted to practice in the community, practice pediatrics, which I started doing. But then was also really thinking about, I really want to get more into the science of things, uh, into advocacy for change. And to do so, I thought maybe the next best thing is to do a master's alongside practicing in the community. And I remember taking my first policy class at U of T uh, in the Department of Health Policy Management and Evaluation. And it was just, it was a game changer for me. I was in class at U of T and, and just thinking about how all of the things that I was thinking about in terms of improving the health for that child and for their family, that I could just do in such a more scaled up way through public policy. So at what point in, in your career did you really start to think about how to bring the powers that be to more intelligent decision making or to have a broader public impact than just say as a, as a GP? I think as a, so as a local doctor, there's something incredibly rewarding, but also incredibly frustrating about your day-to-day -day practice. So your day-to-day -day practice is set out so that you have, uh, you know, 10, maybe 15 minutes uh, to chat with a family about their life, what's going on, what's really happening in the environment or their school around them that's making a difference in their life and their health. But in public policy, we get to really think about how people live, how people make choices uh, in their neighborhoods, uh, how we can shape that over time and for whole communities or for whole jurisdictions and make those choices actually easier, more rewarding, and better. So tell me about what you're doing in Newfoundland right now from a, from a food policy, public policy uh, standpoint. So I went back to Newfoundland Labrador two years ago. So, uh, so even a little bit before that, so after I finished my PhD, I worked actually for the city of Toronto for a little while. And at the time, the city was just starting its work on Toronto's urban food strategy and started to think about all the ways that food that the city already does food and that the city promotes public health through food in so many ways. So that that little bit of experience working with the Toronto Food Strategy, uh, and then I actually went away and lived in Japan and then came back to Toronto and then went back to Newfoundland after all of that. Um, and, and it being clear to me when I went back to Newfoundland this time around that that we could really, really use these policy tools in so many ways to make it so that food could be more accessible, more widely quality, healthy and affordable food could be more widely accessible to more of the population than it was. Because at the same time that we, that in Toronto, you know, in a big city, it's really, really easy to encounter food everywhere. Food just seems really available plentiful every corner there's food there's a million different food uh, locations to buy it but when you go somewhere like Newfoundland and Labrador whether you're in St. John's or if you drive two hours out of town if you drive seven hours out of town uh, the food environment around you really changes in a such a tangible way that that 
food access, you can feel it. Yeah, it's just Mary Brown's as far as the eye can see. <laughs> That's right, and moose. Yeah, on so the highway. <laughs> Amazing. They're everywhere, though. The intersection of, of food and public health, I think, is, is something that's really, it's burgeoning. Like, it's happening right now. I was reading a paper this morning, and it was, it was sort of a, a retrospective, and it looked at how we as society, this is American, so, so how the United States as a society has traditionally looked at public health issues. Um, and it's been centered on the individual. So, uh, so you had a heart attack because you drank and smoked for all those years. Uh, you've got diabetes. You look at your diet. You eat like an animal. You're fat because of some inherent like weakness in character. And that they chartered essentially like 30 years. And, and to present, that's really changed. And, and Americans are really starting to think of, of these health outcomes, these public health issues, as having some social and systemic basis that relates to, to having more intervention and more of a food policy grounding for a lot of public health research and a lot of public health action. The funny thing about what you're saying and uh, this, in terms of the systemic focus, so the idea that the system needs to change in order for people's uh, personal dietary choices to change, I think it, it does feel like we're in a bit of a moment now. But I think that this is also really going back to old school, 100 years ago, public health. So we've kind of had this... Huh. Yeah. So I think if you go back to the very, very early days of public health, so uh, 1900s, 1904, uh, if we think of an example like Upton Sinclair's novel about the Chicago stockyards yeah, and, and, and thinking about public health, and the role of public health, it was about making it making the food supply kind of more accessible in a safe way than it was already. So that when people went out and kind of had their dietary choices or when they purchased food, uh, that they could be somewhat reasonably assured of the quality and the provenance uh, of that food. So that was, you know, that's really, really classic. Uh, communicable disease, infectious disease, public health. Yeah. So somewhere along the way, in the middle of the century, I think public health changed a little bit. We started getting more and more, uh, you know, science got better, biomedical science got better. So we got more interested really in curative medicine uh, and public health profile, I think, uh, decreased a little bit at that time. But public health has really come back uh, into the general discourse, definitely maybe about 30 years ago, and then it's experiencing a big revival right now. And the idea is that public health can be this force. Public health, um, you know, when people think about public health, and, and I raise the example of food safety, we think of often, I think there's a common idea of public health as a force for standardization in the food supply and that mm -hmm. comes from things like food safety inspection and having a, a set of rules or standards that uh, food producers and manufacturers are following but i think that public health is really at least today a force for increasing the diversity in the food system increasing the potential for uh, individuals to make the choices that they want to make and that's what the system 
change or the system, like actually creating a healthy system allows people to do. This has got to be some real new age stuff because every time that public health has entered into my ability to eat what I want, they've usually told me that the choices that I'm making are wrong, right? Uh, I love butter. I do. I disavow the Canada Food Guide. I get really annoyed when when I'm told to drink eight glasses of water a day, like sort of these old standby middle of the 20th century common public health pieces of like stay hydrated and watch that salt and carbs are fine, but the fats are bad, especially generational, generationally. Like it feels like there's a major mistrust of public health at the same time. So if I couch this totally selfishly, like from my perspective, I think the way that I eat is by and large fine. I could be more disciplined, but I'm generally pretty happy. Couldn't we all? Right, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but but there are major issues to, to other people getting the food that I think that they should be eating more of, which I think is, is strange, right? Because then it gets you back into this, like, I want better health outcomes for the populace generally, but I don't want to be affected in my choices when it comes to eating meat or fat. And I want to be able to go out uh, to the national market and go to SEGS and eat jerk. How do you reconcile those two pieces? So in, in policy class for the public health students, I talk about, you know, what's the role of public, public policy and health promotion in actually making people healthier in people's lives. And, and people often think of public health in the way that you've described, that public health is shaping my individual choices. But public health actually isn't about that at all. Public health through... <laughs> I know. Um, so public health, uh, in terms of public policy, healthy public policy and health promotion, is instead about should government actually be helping your neighbor? That's the question that we should be asking about public health. It isn't about what public health should be doing for... What has public health done for me lately? But the idea is that we live in a complex society. We have a really complex food system uh, with all sorts of market forces, profit-making forces, and a lot of interests, let's say, uh, a lot of vested interests in shaping the food system in a, per in a certain way. So public health, through government as an instrument, has a chance to come in and say, is this all working in a way that's you know, fair for everyone? Is it fair for eaters? Is it fair for the small retailer in contrast to the big retailer? Is it, is it fair for the guy that wants to open a food truck and turn it into a restaurant? Is it fair for, at the same time, uh, Sobeys, at the same time for a multinational like Costco? So because public health operates through government, through public policy in that way, uh, it has the chance to create uh, a level playing field for all of those diverse players in the food system and not necessarily uh, just having the most powerful voices in the food system dominate. So what are we learning? Well, let's talk about let's talk about a specific example that you know just came up this week because, uh, as we talked about at the beginning, with soda taxes heating up as a policy issue globally, 
uh, with Jamie Oliver here in, in Toronto to promote a new book and uh, doing the event with the Heart and Stroke Foundation yesterday to talk about things like sugar sweetened beverage taxation as a public health measure that should be put forward by not only local governments, but at the federal government level, that's a very specific public health policy issue that we could talk about. So should we actually care about how much, how much soda people are drinking and how much sugar people are consuming? The answer is totally yes. Um, I think as much as uh, we can imagine you know, sugars, fats, and salts to be totally pleasurable, which they absolutely are. They <laughs> appeal to uh, you know, our appetites in a very particular way. We know that the evidence around this shows that sodas actually have this higher added sugar content that actually decreases satiety. So if you're drinking sugar, sweetened beverages or drinking soda, uh, you'll be less full from it, you'll be less satisfied from it uh, than if you're consuming calories in another way. It also does something else in terms of like the nutrition around it, uh, which is it only incompletely compensates you in terms of energy. So which means if you if you kind of take it on balance calorie for calorie, if you're going to drink a can of pop or eat 200 calories worth of apples or uh, kale, because I have to bring it up, uh, or <laughs> even uh, 200 calories of a burger, let's say. Um, on balance, that can of soda in the, those 200 calories are going to incompletely compensate you for the energy because it's such a very specific type of energy that you're consuming. So if it's, if it's not kind of tasty and making you fuller and and providing you with nutrition, then, you know, is it totally just your personal problem? Well, the answer is no, because the reason why we have such a predominance of soda uh, is that it's really profitable to make. It's right. profitable to sell. It's profitable and easy to transport and get into every remote corner store there is, it's easier to get uh, soda into a convenience store than certainly it is to stock uh, fr fresh fruits and vegetables or even meats or fish uh, or any other kind of food that we can think about. So if this is really a profitable uh, food item that the system is really promoting and it's not really doing anything for us individually. It's not doing anything for us on a population basis. So like if we look at the overall consumption of, of, of sugar in Canada, so about one in five calories that or about 20% of Canadian calories consumed comes from sugar. Um, and it's astonishing. It's astonishing. So this, that, you know, so that number includes naturally occurring sugars as well as the added sugars um, but probably about a third of that is the added sugar category so it's it's an enormous part of the diet yeah yeah so it's an enormous part of individual diets and it's enormous part of the population diet so as soon as that happens it's it's a societal issue it's something that public health and the government really needs to think about 
So is this doing anything for us in terms of population nutrition? No. Why do we look at this any differently than we look at tobacco or that we look at, uh, at alcohol in a lot of ways? Or seatbelts right? or traffic or right. safe air quality in workplaces. Right. These are things where it's not just your individual problem. And that's where I'm getting back to that idea of, you know, should government go and help you and your neighbor? Because it's not just your problem. It's a problem for society as a whole. Right. Or it's a set of uh, things that happen in the environment, um, a shift in society and culture that affects us all. So because of that, it's a matter for public health. So in the U.S., we've seen a lot of movement on this, but at the municipal level, which I think is really interesting. I think that's really interesting as well. So cities are, are, cities are a really interesting part of food and nutrition policy these days, because, mostly because I think cities have historically had, depending on the jurisdiction, not very much, let's say, formal power or formal authority over certain policy areas. Um, municipalities have a limited ability to generate revenue. You know, they usually have mm -hmm. some property tax uh, source of revenue, and that's about it. In Canada in particular, uh, we have uh, a lot of cities where they have quite a limited fiscal capacity and are relatively limited, depending on the size and scale of the city. Uh, policy capacity to actually internally generate policy. So, so how are cities kind of dealing with that? Well, cities are actually innovating. So this is again, and going back to this idea of cities as the little guy innovating and, and saying, we might not have the budget to do this, but we can also test right. new policies that might not be as politically feasible to get through at higher levels of jurisdiction. And we can try it, we can go for it within city council if we can get a simple majority to agree to this. Um, we might actually be able to try something here, we might be able to evaluate it and then see if it actually works. So I think that's, it's again going back to the history of public health, a lot of the early food safety pieces were municipalities mm -hmm. starting to look into it. Right. And so now we're, we've translated from the era of communicable disease to the era of non-communicable diseases or chronic diseases. And cities are taking up this, this action area as well. It gets back to this, the first question that you pose, which is, I mean, should government be helping my neighbor? And it's like, who's better situated to define my neighbor than a city, right? So if we can identify a local population that maybe some of these changes it's more palatable to or it's more relevant to through density or wealth or, um, uh, or background or industry, it's like it starts to become really meaningful. So, so for Philadelphia and for New York, where these aren't necessarily like where a soda tax would be very challenging to get through at a at a national or even statewide level because of different stakeholders with different uh, levels of agency at a municipal level. It's like yeah, we can bring this we forward. Can try it. We can. Why not? Why not? Yeah. yeah. If you look at uh, Berkeley, California, which was the first city in the states to enact of a soda, <laughs> of course it was. It was perfect. But if we look at Berkeley 
and the size and scale. It's the same around the same population as the city of St. John's. Oh no way. Okay. Yeah. So if we think about that in the Canadian context, then don't we have a real opportunity here at a municipal level? But uh, at the present time, we also happen to have a federal government that's really, really interested in promoting health, using all the potential uh, policy instruments that it has available to them. So because of this, and because of, I think, the profile of Canada on the state, on the world stage now, and the direction that globally we're moving in terms of non-communicable diseases and the need for dedicated system-wide societal action on it, Canada, I think, is in place where innovation can happen around food policy, around food and nutrition policy. Where municipalities have started to do this innovation around food policies, they've been able to do this because there is this broader global conversation that municipalities are able to tap into. And this is one of the things that's really exciting about the Habitat 3 conference that you mentioned. Uh, that we were talking about before, that municipalities can begin to join forces with other municipalities of the same size and scale as them, or of different sizes and scales. And through that power of collective action, they can have an influence on policy that's happening within their own jurisdictions at the provincial or national level, where they can exert advocacy around those policy directions in a way that's ever more powerful than when they were a municipality acting alone 10 or you know 50 or 100 years ago right so the canadian federation of municipalities is sort of like the leading example of that right Absolutely. let's yeah. see what everyone's doing vote on this see where we're aligned and let's bring that because right. i mean cities represent the majority of the population in canada so so why should there be a roadblock to something that makes so much sense in an urban environment a couple of years ago there was a food policy agreement uh, signed called the milan urban food policy pact and it really said that cities had this role in uh, making food policy in a way that was fair for all of the different populations and residents so that cities were close to the residents of those communities and could make uh, food that met social, economic, cultural, uh, and health goals at the same time that they were promoting the benefit and the growth and the productivity and the well-being of cities. So that was really about the Milan Urban Food Policy Pact, and it was a perfect example of, of exactly what you're talking about around FCM or other agencies that are getting together in collections of cities to drive the policy agenda. So what we're seeing then uh, at the federal level now is there is a particular administration that is interested in uh, being more proactive, I would say, around policy to promote health and protect health. And as well, we're talking about a government that's more engaged on the global stage, more engaged in thinking about how Canada's policy agenda can also influence and, and provide evidence for other countries that are also looking at policies such as uh, the sugar-sweetened beverage taxation or uh, restrictions on marketing of food and beverages to kids. The example of, of the soda tax or 
that's been a that's been a discussion in the U.S. now for several years. We haven't seen any action in that in Canada, really, to my knowledge. Uh, in Toronto, during the Rob Ford years, there was a question of whether we should be renewing uh, the vending machine contracts in the Toronto District School Board. And Ford was like, yeah, obviously. <laughs> like, it's the only way I got through school, guys. Like, come on. Um, and that was shortly after the Cutting the Waste campaign failed that, that office. Um, where, so where, where are we at in the Canadian context with, uh, with issues like that? I mean, we haven't seen any movement provincially on advertising to kids outside of Quebec. We've talked about it in the Senate a little bit. Uh, they released a report earlier this year. Um, but in terms of, of municipalities or cities really, really flexing some muscle, um, what are we doing to link health outcomes and our food systems in this sort of newly found empowered group of, of urbanites? Let me talk about the food advertising to kids for a minute. Yeah, please. So you mentioned the example of Quebec. When Quebec brought in that, le- that piece of legislation, it wasn't around restricting food choices. And it wasn't actually that much about food at all. Right. It's it was a broad consumer protection legislation that said that if people were going to be effective, informed consumers, that they needed to have a certain set of protections in place in places where they were making purchasing decisions. So the spirit of that legislation, which happened decades ago now has carried forward and people often cite it as an example of, oh, look at this jurisdiction in Canada that went out on a limb on food advertising to kids. And no, the answer is that that legislation was put in place for a very specific set of broader policy reasons, but we're seeing these positive consequences of that forethought now. Of a bill that basically came out of someone saying, have you spoken to a 12-year-old? Like, <laughs> this is a mess. So I that was with obesity. Sorry. So another example is a town in BC that decades ago enacted this legislation that actually prohibited fast food businesses from setting up shop on the main street of the town. So I believe they did this around a planning instrument where they uh, refused to have any of those those the fast food companies that were starting to proliferate at the time it would have been probably in the 70s or 80s to come in and uh, have a license they did this not because they were super interested in restricting food choices for the kids and the parents in the town they did this because they didn't like the way that those fast food businesses looked right on the main street Right. So that was the reason that they enacted that legislation. But what's happened now as a legacy of that legislation is that our social values have started to coalesce so that we see that uh, that having that fast food exposure is having health and nutrition consequences. But this town already had that legislation in place that created this better environment by virtue of, of thinking it through in a slightly different way before. This feels like classic late 20th century discoveries, right? This is, this is Viagra started off as a heart medication and, and Teflon was something that fell on a scientist's shoe at DuPont. Uh, I mean, we, surely we must be getting to a place where we can really start to target like, villains or sorry, gremlins in, our, in our, our public health system or our food system. And 
I think it's more about we need uh, specific legislation that's tools like soda taxes that for which the evidence is really good. But we also need to be quite open to legislation that could set the stage for later on. So that's legislation in the spirit of health promotion, because if health promotion is about building healthy public policies, about creating supportive environments, about actually setting the conditions where people make choices in their everyday lives that are going to be rewarding 10, 20, 30 years down the road, then food is actually one of the perfect policy issue areas to begin to be able to do that. Because food enters into health, it enters into social life, it enters into cultural life, uh, small business, uh, big business, environment, yeah. environment, natural resources, climate change, food does so many things. So food is an area where we can actually be quite forward thinking in how we envision broader policies that might set the stage uh, for a healthier population tomorrow. So what should we be doing? What are we looking at? We want uh, so so amazing things that we've been tracking. Obviously, soda tax has been fascinating. Uh, this new generation of farmers that is increasingly diverse uh, and is replacing sort of the old stock Canadians that have been out in the land since uh, the War of 1812 is a super exciting. Uh, we're looking at, uh, at people making or being more aware, educated of health choices generally, I think maybe of their own devices or because of the internet. Like, where does your work center in helping to guide policymakers uh, in this discussion where we have, we have the tools to create very focused policy that can can lift essentially a variety of social issues all at once through food. So my whole reason for being, my whole <laughs> business model is around sleuthing out health promoting innovations in the food system. So what does that actually mean? It means that I'm really, really interested in looking all across the food system. I'm especially interested in looking at the middle of the food system. So uh, retailing, distribution, and that, that maybe that secondary processing part of food production. So in the middle of the food system that we know that has been consolidated and concentrated and shrunken and disappearing over time, uh, where can we find those little pieces of how individual businesses or individual consumers are coping with that marketplace or coping with that public environment and how can we learn from those begin to test those innovations and then scale them up and by scaling them up I go back right to the beginning of this interview which is around uh, public policy so if there's a really good example of an innovation that's happening on the ground. How can I begin to build the scientific evidence around it to see if this would work on a larger scale for a population, meaning you know, for a whole community or for a whole jurisdiction, like a, uh, like a municipality or a province, or even at the global level uh, through an inter-country comparison? and then use that information to set the parameters for public policy options that are both uh, viable in terms of meeting the needs of the communities as well as forward thinking in terms of not being 
too restrictive or prohibitive that it doesn't allow for that future opportunity to shape health as we know that society is going to continue to change and adapt. So that's all pretty kind of high level. So what I mean by that, and in one of the specific areas that I'm working a lot in now, I, is the retail food environment. So I mentioned that I'm really interested in the middle of the food system. And I think it's because this area of the food system receives less attention in this revival, in this, in this revival that we're having now of interest, of public interest in food, uh, of a food movement, we, there's a lot of play, attention placed on the act of eating. Right. So that's eating, cooking, being a great cook, Instagram, uh, enjoying food. There's also a lot of attention, I think, and rightly so, being placed on food producers. Mm -hmm. So the loss of agricultural productivity, the loss of the consolidation in the agricultural sector, uh, the loss of diversity in the agricultural sector, aging farmers, changes uh, in the industry there. But the middle of the food system, so distribution, uh, processing, and particularly retailing, isn't quite, I think, as sexy for the food movement as the two other ends of the food system tend to be. It's so easy to spin a, a food porn narrative at, at the act of eating, right? And then the act of eating with other people and, and this abstract conception of of growing food or telling the land or making something come from nothing is inherently beautiful and something that particularly urban folks feel like they've lost. Um, but the old saying is like, you don't want to see how a sausage is made like, for a long time. Like it's, there's been a reason for that. Um, so, so I would agree with you on that, but it's also like in terms of our clientele, some of the most fascinating issues that we would come up against are in between processors, distributors, and retailers. And dealing with liability and dealing with waste and dealing with contract and time and expectations and uh, and how food is changed uh, from that agricultural uh, exit point, but before it gets to, to your plate. So that's why I love some of the work that you and your colleagues are doing, because it's really raising uh, awareness and the profile of this part of the sector. But I also want to raise attention to it as a health promotion issue. So again, with health promotion, we're often talking about um, the end of the food system. So consumption uh, or even uh, waste disposal gets right. talked about within public health, let's say. But is it a health promotion issue if a retailer can run their business in a sustainable way, if they can uh, make a profit, if they can grow their business, uh, have a diverse supplier base, employ a, a group of staff uh, sustainably and well and you know with good labor practices. Yes, I would totally argue that all of those are actually core public health issues that need to be incorporated more into the way that we do health promotion and public health policy. So the current research that uh, my colleagues here in Ontario and Australia and in Newfoundland and Labrador are doing is around rethinking retail food environments, particularly in smaller rural and remote communities, and how we can both support 
and enable small retailers to thrive in that business environment, an already really tough business environment in the retail sector, uh, but with additional geographic and structural challenges of being in rural and remote areas. How can we support them at the same time that we're making it possible for them to also make healthier choices to provide a wider variety of quality, healthy, affordable food products to the communities around them, and then also drive demand at the community level to not necessarily drive uh, two hours to the nearest regional service hub to go to the Costco, but actually stay in their small town, do their shopping there, and expect good quality and get good quality and something near to them. Could you tell us what your definition of health promotion is, just so that's very clear? So 2016 is actually a landmark year for health promotion. Health promotion, uh, it's on November 21st, it's the 30th anniversary of the Ottawa Charter for Health Promotion, which was a global agreement that set out the conditions and a definition for what health promotion is for the 20th and the 21st century. So what is the health promotion? What is it? (laughs) So health promotion is five things. Health promotion is about building healthy public policy, which means thinking about how government can do its business in a way that actually promotes people's health. How can government make things fair for people? How can government build in health equity into the way that it does business, that it does economics, that it does uh, transport legislation, that it does labor law. The second thing is supportive environments. So health promotion is about creating a healthy society. Uh, it's about making sure that people have a chance to be healthy in their homes, in their workplaces, where they live, where they play. Uh, right, Strengthening health right in their communities, in people's everyday lives. The third part of health promotion is strengthening community action. So this means that health promotion is about looking at whether people have power over the choices that they're making in their lives. And if not, then increasing their influence and ability to do so. So participating in the political system, banding people together through collective action, banding, I think, retailers together through collective action or through public policy. Again, protecting the little guy to uh, strengthen their potential voice in shaping the community and the society around them. The fourth thing of health promotion is developing personal skills. So it's, it's the idea that if you're going to be an informed consumer, in your day-to-day life, you actually need to have all of the information and skills to do so. So in that way, it's often talked about that health promotion actually increases the choices available to you because the choices that we have, that we can make in our lives are only the choices that are presented to us. But by having more information, more capabilities, uh, greater voice, in the society around us, we actually have that potential to increase our own choices and increase the influence over the choices that we have available. 
And then the last thing is about health promotion is actually about reorienting health services. So at the time when this definition was put forward, uh, there was a real emphasis on all of the spending we were doing in the health system. There still is an emphasis on all of the spending we're doing in the healthcare system, and that our healthcare system is much more of a sickness care system right. than actually a health promotion system. Yeah, it's about curative responses curative to illness. Right. So health promotion is a counterpoint to that to say that it's not something that happens outside the healthcare system, but it's about taking all of that, all of those assets and smart people and clinicians and resources that we pour into the health system and thinking about those institutions as venues for promoting health. So that's, you know, a very specific example for that is why sugar sweetened beverages shouldn't belong like so sorry to go back on sugar but you know like soda doesn't belong in a hospital for that very reason <laughs> right right yeah because it's an institution where we've invested a lot of funds in in somehow improving the health of our population over time so if there's a very clear example uh, of a way in which that institution isn't promoting health at the same time that it's curing disease, then we should be taking steps to do that. So health promotion is actually much broader, absolutely. I think, than it's most massive. people think about. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's this absolutely this spirit of broad health promotion that I think people should be thinking about 30 years after the definition was made. And I think that it should only really grow in people's minds over the next 30 or 100 years. I don't think I've ever had uh, the discussion about sort of using this definition or using sort of this thought process when it comes to uh, triple bottom line accounting. We use an environment, right? And so we're looking at environmental problems. That's right. True cost accounting of the, uh, of the f across the food system totally. or across our ecological systems, right? So, so to, to look at the same transaction and say there is a public health cost and benefit to every transaction, every time that you go in to purchase any item of food or almost any item, period, like, like anytime you interact with anything, there's a public health cost to it. And it, it explodes what you can start to think about in terms of public policy options, which is really exciting. It's really fun. And so this, uh, so to reel it back to this idea of, of going into a grocer and saying, okay, well, like, like, what are the occupational health and safety rules around here? It's like, well, that's public health. And what's the food that's been stocked and where and for how much? And that's public health. What, where is the food merchandised? Uh, and that's public health. And what food is on sale and what food is not on sale that month? And that's public health. And where that store sits in the community and if it looks nice on the outside and if it's a welcoming environment for people to get there, that's public health. If there's bike parking outside right. your grocery store or if the whole next block is taken up by a parking lot, that's public health. If there's a bus stop that stops right in front of that grocery store that comes from your apartment tower an hour away, that is also public health. Does anyone else get this except you and now me? <laughs> like when you talk to government, when you sit down with a minister or a DM or whomever, and you say, okay, this is fundamentally a public health issue. 
uh, and you're talking about something that is related to public transit or that is related to to the use of a bicycle or to workplace conditions. Do they make that link? I think an enlightened government does get it. But what happens is, is enlightenment is often easily shadowed by the practical, logistical, and feasible of the day-to-day business of doing government and making public policy. So it's a little bit of the spirit of, we can't have nice things (laughs) in society. Uh, or we can't have nice things with public dollars is that by exploding the definition of public health are we are we almost putting forward a utopian idea of public health there's a, a world health organization definition of public health that says you know health is is a complete comprehensive condition of not just absence of infirmity but this complete ability to have all the capacities and resources for you to take advantage of all the health opportunities in your life and have access to them in an equitable way across the society. So this is a really big aim and it often seems out of the reach of uh, a partic- of any given policymaker or any given government that's after all in power for four years if they're lucky. So I think the solution to that is linking that big vision of public health, that broad definition of health promotion into really small and tangible solutions that make a difference in the everyday. This is where we come back to the example of the small community-based innovations that are happening in municipalities. Because these are obviously decisions that make such practical sense for a community. Uh, It made sense for that community to restrict the fast food businesses on the main street. And they did that on a very localized level. They probably had, I don't know, but they probably had a town meeting where they discussed it and maybe the shopkeepers on the street had a had it had it say in that and then right. council had a vote and they discussed it and they said this is right for our community so by connecting the big broad health promotion aims to these really small practical solutions that's how we actually start to move all of public policy forward towards this broader vision of a healthy population so then how do we give local government the skills to start thinking in this manner, start thinking in a more purposive manner when it comes to public health? I think some of the structures that are already happening are, are really positive. So small local governments are having more and more uh, linkages to other small local governments. And so at the same time, I think that the work that you're doing with uh, the middle of the food supply chain is so important because it connects it connects those small players to other small players and through those uh, they can you know share examples they can share ideas on okay this worked for our situation this solved our practical problems in this situation but we also need you know we need scientists and we need uh, government to capture all of those little lessons and exchanges that are happening and then begin to use those lessons 
to create public policies that say, okay, we've learned from these these very precise practical examples. So how do we translate this into a set of standards or a set of uh, enabling requirements so that the whole industry can learn right. from these best practices? So this is a this is a very uh, bottom up or ground up yeah, way of say. doing public policy, but it's generally what I think is the future of public policy. And, and policy scholars are increasingly talking about this, that this is the era of, uh, of not government, but governance. And what they mean by that is that practice-based solutions that we've always known about, and intuitively, policymakers know that that's where policy lives, like on the ground. Those examples and lessons are becoming increasingly important to how we design new policies, or look back at old policies and see how we can make them more responsive to how they're actually received when they're implemented or enforced. I mean, even in a commercial setting, it feels often like government is, is almost like 10 or 15 years behind what the market demands in terms of said uh, standards and harmonization when it comes to sourcing food or sourcing shellfish or uh, what practices were employed in terms of, of how you rear chickens or pork or cattle. It's like it's not government that's that's driving these discussions anymore. Government is largely reactionary, and it's it's the consumer or suppliers or sort of a knock-on effect thereof that is demanding uh, clarity and transparency in in food sourcing. I think so, and it's really exciting and promising for the food system that this is the way that the direction of change that's happening. So it's really incumbent on higher levels of government or, uh, you know, to the higher power <laughs> comes the great responsibility That's to right. also be responsive, to have their ear to the ground and, and hear these conversations and be attentive to these potential sources of improvement at a system level. That Ottawa Charter is remarkable. Thank God for the internet. I mean, that ticks off box number four. <laughs> Personal skills. It's like, we can develop those. People hang out on the net. They'll figure it out. Otherwise, my God, like, what an ambitious five points. I think that people have, when we think about health promotion, or when, when I talk about health promotion with most people, they think about somebody that came to their school to tell them how to choose more vegetables when they went shopping at the grocery store. Yeah. That's what most people think of when they think about health promotion. But yeah. we have this great framework for all of the broader ways in which health promotion affects our lives. So I think we really need to return to that. And the 30th anniversary is a perfect time to return to that. Uh, it should be amazing. Kathy, thank you so much for coming in. This was super enlightening from from a simple lawyer's perspective where I'm dealing with ministerial discretion and regulations, but to see the the policy development side of things and how expansive public health as it intersects with food can be used as a tool to improve health outcomes. Really exciting, super educational. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. That was Catherine Ma on Welcome to the Food Court. Next month, we speak with Charles Benoit, a lawyer and co-owner of the Toronto Distillery Company. 
which is about to bring a constitutional challenge to the Court of Appeal of Ontario. Until then, thanks for listening, and thanks to Shane McPherson for the music. Thank you.